0: I'm Alex Stewart, your host and founder of the Low Tox Life movement. Low Tox Life is built on empowering tools to help you and me all do our best for our health and the planet. And on the podcast each week, I love nothing more than delivering you the brightest minds across all Low Tox topics, food, body, home, mind, and planet, so that I can continue to up level for you guys, bring amazing Low Tox swaps through our wonderful sponsors and bring you the brightest minds day in day out all I will ever ask is that you take the time to like subscribe follow or add a cheeky review the next time you think to hey now is a really good time Boy, am I glad you have tuned in with me today because this week we are kicking off 2024 with Dr. Jason Horolak. And he, for those of you who may not have heard the two shows we've done with him, which I will put in the show notes for you so you can back catalogue because they were both fabulous, is one of Australia's brightest minds when it comes to probiotics and gut health. We are going so many places today because. Jason was recently at the Global Probiotics Annual Conference, heard lectures from people doing incredible research, incredible thought leaders in the gut health and probiotic space. And today's show is basically your crib notes of that conference. What do we know about all of the questions we have about gut health? Where are we at with probiotics? Yay or nay on gluten? We cover it all today, including the estimated time between now and when we may actually be able to go to a poop bank And place an order. Uh, If any of that sounds intriguing, I know you're going to like today's show a lot. We have two wonderful sponsor offers and this year what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to elaborate in the show notes about some of the things in the ranges of the sponsors and their wonderful offers that they provide for your low-tox swaps to be a little easier on the hip pocket Uh, so that you can actually go deeper if this is something of a priority for you right now. Our first one is uh, the Natural Bedding Company. These guys are celebrating 40 years in business this year. They have stunning showrooms that you literally want to move into here in Sydney and over in the Gold Coast. And they've curated 15% off with the code LOTOXLIFE, a huge range of products on their website or in their showrooms. And uh, you have the link to that curated range, which includes, by the way, some wool products which have never been discounted. Uh, I know a lot of people find swapping pillows and mattresses and uh, and things like that, a little bit exe and if it's time for you to do that, I can't recommend this beautiful family business enough. Their integrity and ethics are awesome. So head to the show notes, lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast, and you'll find more information there, including some of my recommendations. Our other sponsor we have guaranteed up until the end of March this year, Oz Climate is back. It is a very humid season for us here in Australia, and you might want to make the most of that 10% off with the code LOTOXLIFE, and that includes on top of any sale prices they have on their website. Uh, Again, I have done many shows, many Instagram reels, both on humidity, on dehumidifying, and on air filtration. So I don't know anyone who's Never had an unexpected leak. Uh, I don't know anyone who doesn't have to deal with some sort of environmental effect, whether it's uh, allergies, whether it's bushfires, whether it's pollution. And Oz Climate is a brilliant Australian business uh, providing top notch appliances for us when it comes to dehumidification, air purification, and now portable air conditioning. So head to ozclimate.com.au. 10% off with the code LOTOXLIFE, and again, more information in the show notes with some of my personal recommendations. Enjoy today's show with Jason. It's a cracker. Jason, how are you? I'm very good, actually. It's been a
1: busy year, but a pleasant year, and it's summer. And I'm, ai uh, think, coming from Canada. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> where, You're grateful for any sun you can get. Yeah, the yeah, and the summer just
1: short. You know, I think it's <laughs> thing. It's beautiful, and for, for two, two and a half months where I grew up. It was. It's lovely and sunny. It's just that for the other nine out of 10 months, it's not.
0: So uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you back on the show, you are now officially joining the triple threat club, Jason, as one Ooh, of the people who've been on cool, three times <laughs> uh, is because you are always so committed to staying at the absolute forefront of what the gut health conversation is out there. Um, obviously as a clinician, as a scientist yourself as well. And Uh, You were at a conference and I was following these posts you were doing thinking, yes, this is so interesting. People need to know it because often you stick with the point of entry of which you learnt at a subject as a consumer. So you go, okay, Blasto is awful and Uh, You know, like maybe uh, IBS is peppermint oil or whatever. Like you start somewhere and then that's what you know about that subject and life is busy. You're not a doctor or a practitioner and so you move on. But science keeps evolving and uh, we know a lot more now. Uh, We're a lot clearer on a few things and we realise a few things aren't perhaps quite as clear as they originally seemed in that black and white sense. So,
1: I- no, no. I, I mean, it was a pleasure to go. Like for me, spending like three days at a microbiome conference where the lead researchers in the world are talking gut and microbiome is like a fantasy. Almost, and even more so because it was, it was in Rome in Italy. So it's like, geez, how could it get bigger? I just love. Rome was just a stunning city so just like combine mm. that together but it's amazing the conferences there. they get like 11 hour days with like a one hour break uh, versus I'm used to Australian conferences where you're like oh you have morning tea <laughs> <laughs> having a long lunch and afternoon tea and they only go for eight hours but if you take all that yeah this one's just like boom these huge days with like and and all these amazing sessions you have to try to run to get, to get to to you know miss anything really um vital but um so my brain was very packed after those days but yeah, it was it was absolutely brilliant in terms of learning capacity. Like learning from the people who are at that cutting edge. I think that's the thing, um, and I think. It's responsibly for me as as a clinician and as an educator, because, you know, I, one of the key things I do is educate other health professionals to, to, so they stay up to date. Is like for me, I, I need to do this. And even for my patients, too, it's like I want them to get the best care possible, which means I have to stay as updated as possible in this field. And, you know, then you have patients who get better on the things you prescribed 20 years ago, which is great. It's lovely. The things have always worked, but there's people that don't. And this is where you always have to expand your your toolbox to have more, more, more tools to help those patients. I think that's what I love about constantly learning and updating is you are adding more tools to that toolbox, which means you can help a a broader number of people that that I think is wonderful.
0: A hundred percent. And as I thought about some of the things I wanted to ask you in our countdown uh, towards number one, the first three are actually related to pregnancy and babies uh, I remember when my bub was uh, born, who's now almost taller than me, uh, I remember giving him like a little bifido blend because my naturopath said that was a good idea because I'd had an emergency C-section. And and I was really grateful to have that support. Uh, and I'm sure he was as well. He had excellent early brain development Um and interestingly, choline was mentioned as well, which we're just about to unpack too. So that first point, um, choline in pregnancy. Then, I'd love for you to talk about choline, like what it is, why it's important to us, um, and why perhaps until now it might have been underappreciated in that preconception, pregnancy, nutrition conversation. Because it's not one that kind of floats to the top. In you know, I always think of the mainstream. Body and soul kind of lift out of a Sunday paper, and what they're talking about—that's the float to the top stuff that everybody knows. Um, but I feel like we should all know a lot more about choline.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think that float to top is, stuff has changed time, over time too, because it wasn't like iodine wasn't necessarily there ten or twenty years ago, and how now it is, um, and folate—you know—kind of went up to that point. And I think it, it's now seen that that choline is is a similarly vital in that during during pregnancy um, and, uh, you know, during breastfeeding too, to ensure the best best outcomes. And similarly to things like folate, um, it's for you know, prevention of neural tube defects too, but there's also some, you know, research suggesting better outcomes in a child in terms of brain development, etc. when we have proper dose of the head, not a good amount of choline exposure too. And, and I think in some ways it's been like the, almost like a forgotten B vitamin, because I think people have assumed that, oh, it's ubiquitous in in foods, therefore, we must get enough, and not necessarily looking at actually how much do we need, and how much is in our food supply that we usually eat, and realizing that no, there's actually a gap there. Um, Like I think they eventually did with with folate too. It's um, oh no, we need you know, and I think with folate decided they let's just shove it in, flours and breads and things like that as a way of trying to deal with that. Although obviously they're using you know um, folic acid synthetic form, which has you know it is questionable in some ways. It's challenges. So yeah, it does yeah. have some challenges. Um, but I think it's come to the fore more recently. And obviously your practitioner um, was on it years ago when they were talking about choline back at, the, at that point. And I do think like, you know, health nutritionists, et cetera, who have often been on the ball for uh, well and truly before something becomes mainstream. And this is one of those cases where I think it's the scenario. Um, I think some of the challenges come though is because it's become, people have more awareness about it. And then some companies go, hey, let's put this in all of our, our prenatal multis is that the form that they're using, um, choline um or tartrate i think is one that's that's commonly used um has been associated with increasing uh a, i do the best way of describing it but a tmao uh trimethyl and oxide trimethylamine oxide it's kind of like it starts off as a choline goes down to the it's, it's to the gut the microbiota interacts with it converts that to trimethylamine so tma and your liver converts that to tmao so it's a bit of a complex relationship it's just that if you have too much of TMAO, it seems to be um, problematic from like a uh, metabolic health perspective, type 2 diabetes, um, uh, cardiovascular disease perspective, which is you know one thing about that we may not be thinking of so much in pregnancy, but there's some suggestion that it may actually be harmful having TMAO build up during pregnancy too, um, and that's getting people to question, but is that the best way we should be taking choline?
0: Right. Um, so that's kind of like kind of like the folic acid issue, right? Yeah, it's not
1: too dissimilar, actually. That's Mm. why we're kind of jumping in, going with perhaps with the knowledge that we have at a time. And then as more knowledge comes to the fore, we realize actually that's probably not the best approach and maybe we should be it otherwise. So, I mean, I think there's other ways of getting choline, like some of my colleagues will prescribe you know, lecithin has the way of getting choline because that's a way of, of ensuring in you know, a couple of tablespoons a day, you, you meet your choline needs and you're doing it in a way that doesn't seem to
0: increase TMAO. And, and that's that like the the sunflower or soy lecithin that you yeah. buy at a health shop kind of. That's thing. right. Yeah. Right.
1: That's right. And that, I mean that used to be such a trendy supplement in the seventies and eighties. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it like feels it, like it. Yeah. Yeah, it and then like it kind like of lost the... lost its its enamorer, you know, and now it's sort of I think it'll come back up again too. Also, you know, a yolks contain a fair bit of. of um, choline to an end uh, has phosphatidylcholine so it's a more you know natural way that doesn't seem to have the same issues with it from the, the choline um, supplementation perspective so there's some that are arguing that we should be doing it via food or f- food like things and I put you know the lecithin in that in that category because it's food derived to sort of concentrate it up but it means you're you're getting it in a way that you don't have the TMO um concern issue yeah, yeah that's right
0: and so phosphatidylcholine was what you mentioned there as being the good type uh, the, the, let's call it optimal type.
1: Optimal type. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah.
0: And the one that you said, was it, um, tartrate? Yeah. S- yeah.
1: By tartrate H- is what's okay. often added to supplements.
0: So that's the one we want to try and avoid if we can, if we've got a choice of two between us, let's go with the phosphatidyl. Column. Yes.
1: I think that's the prudent option if we can. And I still think probably that the bulk of data is suggestive that having choline in that as, as by better than none <laughs> no choline, but it's just not the optimal way of of having it, you know, and probably similar to the folic acid too, is like, you know, that we know that folic acid itself, well, we're not the optimal form has prevented neural tube defects from from occurring. Yeah. It's just that we know that we can give it in better form and we don't have to, some of the issues that we're having.
0: Um, yeah. And so given we are actually talking about it and there might be someone who's brand new to all this, who's like, so what type of folic acid do I take? Uh, I mean, I have a funny pregnancy story later finding out I had a homozygous polymorphism in my MTHFR gene. Um, I was taking a folic acid in a B complex, um, 400 milligrams a day or micrograms a day, whatever it was that you had to hit. And, uh, I remember my pregnancy addiction was the frozen packet spinaches from the supermarket Ah. melted into a pan with a ton of butter and salt. And I just ate that every single day of my pregnancy. It was like a drug. And of course, later finding out that I had this polymorphism, so I wasn't getting that folic acid. You need real folate. I found a way, and I just <laughs> did. find the human yeah. body amazing, like that. So that's a food example. But if someone was looking at supplements, what do you want to see in the ingredient list?
1: Yeah, and this is, this is totally not my my default area, but I no, no it, I know, yeah, I yeah. Just... Uh, but but it but it is. It's like the uh, tetrahydrofolate is kind of the one we're after, like the and and some people argue about flunic acid being helpful. Maybe a combination of flunic acid and the the, the the folates, meaning we, co- we cover things the best best possible um but i think it's essentially avoiding when you can folic acid but i think you know <laughs> again like there's the, the 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 having none it's not gonna be helpful either but having just trying to choose supplements to contain the right form and or dietary sources i think you can't go wrong because you know the folate we find in nature is the right sort of sort this is a human-made synthetic version that that do some of the functions but in some people not other aspects of it because we're lacking the ability of you know pushing that through to what we want it to become
0: yeah absolutely now one of the posts that you did about the conference uh was from professor ventura's suggestion for bifidobacterium cultivation supplementation and also talking about maybe there being a situation where you should be stool testing babies Um, to decide. Before supplication. Right. So
1: that's
0: new.
1: It's an interesting area. Yeah. Mm. And I think um, sometimes we forget about how unique your microbiome is. And I think this feeds into that and how it's been passed down your family line for generation after generation after generation, your unique um, family strains of bifidobacteria, for example, that are different from other family strains of bifidobacteria. And the idea here is if you're kind of supplementing with you know someone else's bifidobacteria, which is kind of you are, when you're taking a supplemental bifidobacteria, it's come from somebody else or some usually a person, but sometimes an animal, um, but typically people. And and often the supplements we're taking are in a economist, kind of like there's certain bifidobacteria um that we see as more sort of like baby infant style bifidobacteria, then we have sort of more adult style bifidobacteria. Um, and many of our supplements contain the adult style ones and that's arguably fine and beneficial for adults but <laughs> there's some consideration that's coming up about is it interfering with the natural development that would occur if you're, you're actually supplementing with this adult type bifidobacteria it comes in some of these These, and i should clear, clarify this too that many of the probiotics that have baby on the label still contain <laughs> adult style bifidobacteria so you can't go with that okay because it's just a marketing thing you know there's there are some that are designed with that in mind, but most of this is a marketing thing. Oh, let's put a baby on the label and people will buy it. That's kind of where they come from, and that's problematic. Um, and it may be more problematic than we actually know, because the idea here might be that they can outcompete your indigenous populations of the, the infant-specific bifidobacteria um, for, for food sources, which in this case might be human milk oligosaccharides. And, and therefore actually not, you don't get the same kind of uh, development of bifidobacteria populations. Because I think the human, I mean, my, my colleague Don Whitten, who I work with in probiotic advisor, this is her specific area. So I'm, I'm like second best to her for sure in this area. But she was, there's, there's some degree you could be sharing between um, those infant specific ones where they actually encourage the growth of other bifidobacteria. And that's not the same case with the adult type ones, particularly uh, bifidobacterium subspe- subspecies longum um species um infantis or infantis um that particular strains in that spe- species tend to like cross feed other they like they encourage the growth of other bifidobacteria. bacteria so when they eat they're like oh take some of this take some of that i'll share it around and everyone grows in is much happier broader ecosystem and we're not getting that when we're getting these sort of adult type ones that are coming in and go, you know and they're kind of gobbling things up and you don't get that sort of bloom of a, of a broader community um
0: yeah. So even though even though they're good in their nature, um, it's almost kind of like the the prefect in the schoolyard and they're just too powerful and too bossy yeah, yeah. No, that's for their just, own good. Yeah, it's yeah. a good
1: good analogy. And I think if someone has no bifidobacteria, then that's okay, they're better than no bifidobacteria for sure. I think the concern again here is is nuances like what's optimal. Optimal is your family's infant specific bifidobacteria growing in the way that they have, have evolutionary always done you know and i think this is whenever we interfere with to my mind whenever we interfere with with what has like, the way nature has set things up there's problems <laughs> you know um and sometimes we've interfered before and caused lack of bifidobacteria. we've killed them all off or you know, right some, i was gonna and was, ask yeah, like in as which a case mom. fair enough it's okay i, I think supplementation Makes sense, although we might choose our, our to choose use the, the the infantis bifid bacteria as our supplementation in that in that scenario, you know, because it is such an amazing relationship between you know even the the, the human milk oligosaccharides, which is essentially the prebiotic like sugars found in breast milk. Okay, they are individual; each woman makes a different collection of them. There's some that are similar across four or same, and then some that are completely unique to feed the factor that you've kind of passed down your family line is like this amazing lock and key situation. You know, and that I always feel like interfering with that is when you don't need to is problematic. Whereas I think, again, yeah, there's a time and place. And this is the idea is, okay, you, you do a stool test. Do they have bifidactory? Are things growing the way that they should? Then don't interfere. Yeah. Don't give a baby type probiotic if they don't have it, and need one and things are growing. It's just um, but if they do need one, then yes, you you, you choose the one that's most appropriate for, the, for that, which is different than the adult type bifidobacteria in general. Although, it, again, I would argue that adult type are better than no no bifidobacteria because there's a um, that development of that ecosystem in the first couple of years of life. Is absolutely pivotal, and we're still really teeing at exactly how pivotal it is. But it tra- it trains your your immune system to function properly or improperly. It trains your your nervous system to function properly or improperly, depending on what species are there at different time points. And we get this evolution that's supposed you know the way it's always been is you know we're born vaginally, we're we're given breast milk up until very recently. This was always the norm, and so we have this evolution of the of the gut ecosystem that goes along this this pattern. Yeah, and the, the ecosystem changes over the first six months of, of life, and then as would introduce the changes again, but at those different time points, how it interacts with uh, the human cells and our immune system help, helps train it you know, to to function. And, and We know like antibiotic use under you know three months of age increases the risk of asthma and uh, eczema and hay fever development. Could be kind of we're interfering with that training by by killing certain species off, by changing that the, the dynamic, and you're increasing these pro-inflammatory species at a time. We're not supposed to have them there. And we're decreasing these anti-inflammatory bifidobacteria. bacteria. And then they interact with the immune system in a different way. And we get like lifelong allergic disease because of an antibiotic course when we're young. And that that's pretty clear from the research too. And as we tease go in, delve into the that the importance of all those interactions and how we're we're learning in the early window, it again becomes really important not to interfere when we can. Like again, there's a time and place for antibiotics where they save lives, they save limbs. It's not a, a, a you don't know, discuss it, but is just like we don't want to use it for viral infection? <laughs> you no, know? It's like you really want no, no. to question, is it really indicated? Yes. is there evidence to show this would be helpful? Um, and then also try to to do stuff to to counterbalance that as best we can to absolutely.
0: And and I'm I'm hearing everything you're saying, and then of course my mind goes to um, this interesting idea. Then that is our ability to manage crisis and save lives. Is the trade off of that sometimes then like more insidious chronic um, repercussions? of the way we save. So I'm I'm not questioning anyone out there, myself included, like emergency C-section hand up, uh, chronic tonsillitis in my 20s, shit ton of antibiotics, guys. Like, honestly, we are all in a modern story that has complicated uh, variations to the natural theme of things. However, it really does interest me that we Save in one way, and our crisis management in health is actually one of the most amazing parts of our, our modern healthcare system. What we can do to save a one week old baby uh, who contracts some hideous infection that's incredible. That kid gets to live and top this, yeah, stage. or the
1: ones who's born two months early,
0: yeah, you know, otherwise and would have died in the past, exactly. You know? yeah. So, which is so lovely and so amazing and avoids so much heartbreak, and then we also have the reality of how perhaps the way we've become better at saving and crisis um, has actually somehow inadvertently made us as a whole unhealthier.
1: Yeah, I would say yes. (laughs) I think that's, that's very well described. And it feels like that's the scenario, you know, it's like there are, Antibiotics are such a double edged sword. I and mean, I think this is the thing. And I think you fast forward 50 years from now, and I reckon medicine be like, what the hell were they doing giving those agents? What the hell were they thinking? Because we are, and this is the shifting awareness too. Like I've been researching the microbiota for almost 24 years, essentially, when I first started preparing for my honors thesis of delving into the microbiome literature. Back then there was just a handful of researchers saying this stuff, this, this is important. Like the microbiome is important. Whereas most people are like, Oh, it's just some bacteria in your gut. It doesn't matter. This you can kill it, it doesn't matter. You know, it'll, something will grow back. It'll be fine. Um, that's changed <laughs> a lot over that time. Um, so I lost my track a little bit there in terms of where I was going to go with that, but. Um...
0: It's more sort of just to bring you back. It's, it's about like, Recognizing almost that the next evolution of medicine is to take into account when there is a crisis, how are we creating scaffolding around that? Yeah, yes, thank you. To then not create an after effect of chronic disaster. Yeah, where we're kind of slightly unwell in a variety of growing ways over the human lifetime. Yeah, I, just, I, I can't I accept so. that that's our future.
1: Yeah. Cause I think we'll get it and we'll go, okay, well yeah, again, C-sections save lives when they need to be done. We should do them. No, no, it's debating that bit. It's just like, can we do anything to help that ecosystem that we've essentially changed develop as per normal? I even, um, like c-section born kids for example their skin microbiome is the same as the hospital staff that touched them first it's not it's not like either mom or dad whereas in a normal you know vaginal birth situation the skin flora resembles you know the parental microbiome but skin flora for c-section kids resembles hospital staff that touched them first but can we inter- intervene with that process yeah if you if they uh, if you have a towel or you know from home that has you know, mom and de- you know parental microbes on that, and then that goes onto the bub, and they go directly onto the to the you know the, the mom right then and there, yes, that would mitigate those things. So there are ways we can do to you know try to normalize things after those interventions, but we have to be aware of the fact that they cause harm. And I think what I was kind of leading to before getting lost before was just the end, like that awareness of. Microbes go from they don't really matter to actually these are these are really important. We should think of these as the the new microbe organ. It's the same as like the stomach or the small intestine or the liver. It plays these really important roles and that's that's sort of gaining traction at long last. But now there's a shift uh, of thinking of us being these um, meta-organisms or holobionts that are composed of human cells and non-human cells and that makes us us. And I think this area is really gathering sp- sp- um, speed and I think, yeah, in 20 years time we'd be like, yeah, you are human cells and, and microbe cells together make you, you. And if you're killing the microbe parts of you, there are consequences to that. Yeah, and that's kind of what we've been doing inadvertently with with the that thinking of antibiotics like chemotherapy, but they kind of have been because they're killing parts of you, you know, and there are consequences to that. And including, I mean, I was reading some studies looking at early childhood antibiotic use and cognitive decline and increased risk of Alzheimer's like, you know, years, years later. Um, other research looking at again, antibiotic use and cognitive decline, because I've been writing some lectures in that area, they're looking at women in their 50s, and if they had taken a cumulative uh, two months of antibiotic use from 50 to 59, um, in their 60s, they lost four years of sort of cognitive capacity in their brain from from that Uh use of antibiotics in that that time because of the changes in the microbiome, the pro-inflammatory nature of them. Also keeping in mind, I think this is also mind-blowing too, is that most people have at least some knowledge of, of, of mitochondria in our, in our cells. Yeah. So mitochondria are like little battery packs little energy houses in our cells, but they've actually, they're, they're, they've evolved from bacteria. Yeah. They're like a bacteria within our cells. It's like an interesting process, but they're susceptible to antibiotics too, because they are bacterial derived and the antibiotics actually kill damage our mitochondria, which are your know, energy producing cells. And we damage the mitochondria it essentially in, it speeds up the, the aging process and leads to, to you know, chronic, um neurological diseases that we're, we're seeing around us too so another connection with with antibiotics so as i said you fast forward 20 years or 50 years probably they'll be like man you guys are living in the dark ages what the hell are you doing causing so much harm you know just like we think of things like bloodletting or you know <laughs> techniques that have like go no we've moved on that's past, past that thank you very much we'll be thinking like that with 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 probably antibiotics but we'll also be doing things to, to try to counterbalance that of things like what i call fecal banking where um children before the first course of antibiotics, you you, t- you take a poo sample, you have the microbiome ready to re-inoculate them after the course of antibiotics. That way it fixes it. The is oh. like, boom, super easy. Like, could we do this now? Yes. Um, And, and event, again, fast forward 20 years, this this will be kind of the normal process of actually we'll be doing these sort of um fecal banking so we can re-inoculate yourself with the microbiota after a course of antibiotics to get around that issue. It's just, we've been really slow with adapting our, you know, um procedures that can be life you know um saving but harmful <laughs> as, as well um to see if we can counterbalance the harmful bit because there's been lack of acknowledgement of the fact they cause harm i think that's been the biggest issue because before antibiotics are only oh, you, you get some diarrhea for a while sure maybe a small opportunity to get a c diff infection we'd give you more antibiotics for that rather than actually you getting long-term harm um you know one of my phd students was to, we Looking at uh, antibiotic use and depression, and we looked at every single study had been published to date, all of them show that antibiotics increase the risk of depression. Um the more antibiotics, the greater your risk of depression development afterwards. and and some once study actually found even ten years after course antibiotics, your risk of developing depression was increased versus not making antibiotics. you know, so this far-reaching impact on on cognitive capacity, mental health, um as well as you know gut health is you' generally often just thinking about.
0: Huge. And so for parents out there or for people who've had to be on antibiotics lately who are now thinking, okay, can you just give me like a couple of things that help create some scaffolding around antibiotics? So like a swab was done. I'm a big fan of requesting from your GP a swab before you decide to take any antibiotic because A, it might be viral. You might find out. B, you might find out that the one they were going to prescribe was actually not the correct drug for that antibiotic, so you end up needing to take two courses when you could have actually just gone the one if you really needed it. Um, So I think people having this literacy around an empowered conversation with their health professionals is step one. Step two, the scaffolding. Can you give us, Jason, just a couple of things that help mitigate damage at the time of taking or directly after, while we wait for these beautiful fecal banks to be created, uh, they're not here yet. Um, so what what do you find to be the absolute most helpful go-tos?
1: Yeah, we now know that if you take the right robotic during the course of antibiotics, you will limit the degree of damage caused and help it restore more quickly afterwards. And, and I should say the right probiotic. I'm stressing that bit because they're, uh, there was a study uh, published a couple of years ago that had like major media coverage because it showed that taking a probiotic supplement during antibiotics actually slowed the restoration and, and harmed the microbiome. It turns out that it was it was it was an Israeli probiotic supplement. <laughs> Um, on, on the marketplace there. And this particular um, probiotic, the strains used in that supplement did produce compounds that were harmful to our gut microbiota. Um, so it just showed that if you just randomly taking a probiotic, you could actually get a negative outcome rather than the positive outcome you're after. It's really important you choose the ones that have clinical trials showing that they're helpful. In this case, we have uh, lactobacillus rhamnosus strain GG and I'm going to say the strain GG bit is super important. You just can't go with any lactose rhamnosus. It's actually the GG bit that's really important. Um, and also Saccharomyces cerevaceae variety boulardii, uh, people just call SB for short, for, for obvious reasons. Both those have data showing that they limit the harm to the microbiome, limit side effects to the ant- from antibiotics as well, and restore the ecosystem to a better state afterwards. So I think those are key during and ideally for six weeks afterwards. But I think the other... Useful addition is what we call prebiotics. So prebiotics, uh like, probiotics are a live bacteria that when you give to people, you get health benefits. Now prebiotics are like the selective fertilizer that encourages the growth of only beneficial bacteria in your gut. Yeah. This is the thing is they're selective. You take them, your good, bug, good bug count goes up and that's exactly what you want. After of course antibiotics where you know, every antibiotic is different. Yeah. So some will have a dramatic impact. Some will have a more mild impact. Some, can co- cause extinction level events where this study published a couple of years ago had nine species of bacteria extinct, went extinct from one course of antibiotics.
0: Nine what was species. the antibiotic? Do you remember?
1: Zeftriaxone. Wow. Deftriaxone. And it was given by IV too. So it wasn't even taken orderly. It's like a dose intravenously, nine species gone forever from that single thing. And, and this is where you start thinking of, you see like as someone who works in the microbiome field testing patients, you just see the ones who take all the antibiotics you get this lowering and lowering of, of, of ecosystem diversity and richness because every single course will have an impact.
0: Well, yeah. I can definitely vouch, as someone who gets a big green tick on my microbial score for very diverse. Oh, good. Happy. So, and I would have taken, gosh, chronic tonsillitis lasted about 15 years before I finally kicked it. Uh, With gluten uh, sensitivity, something we're going to talk about in a little bit, Um, probably 20, 25 rounds of antibiotics.
1: Yeah. Um, Maybe
0: even 30 if you just count the lifetime and the couple of times either side of that. But it was a very intensive time.
1: Yeah. And to show that there's a degree of resilience there, thankfully, and even with, with that. Um, I think we have to tell that
0: positive people. story, right? Totally, well, yes. Yeah, yeah, we do.
1: I mean, and and also, I mean, the most and the least I've seen with patients is the least number of of, sort of genera of span in people's guts. So genera is like bifidobacterium or lactobacillus or acromansia or genera of bacteria was 12. The most I've seen is like 450, yeah, in different samples. And that was someone that grew up in rural Mexico, so they had lots of, you know interaction with nature and and other people that were sort of eating and living more traditional life. Yeah, whereas the the one who had 12 had been on long dose, long-term courses of vancomycin, which just decimates um, the ecosystem, the good bacteria in the ecosystem. Um, but yes, there's a degree of resilience there too. That that if they survive the onslaught, we can encourage them to come back. And this is where prebiotics come into it, because prebiotics selectively feed your good guys and give them this huge growth advantage. Going okay, you've just been smashed down by antibiotics. Well, here, here's a selective fertilizer that only you can use. So your population will expand and come up relatively rapidly. So so prebiotics would be things like um, fructo oligosaccharides or, or inulin galacto-oligosaccharides, and then lactulose would be probably the three most well-researched prebiotics. But then you also have partially hydrolyzed guaragum or PHCG. Ideal situation is I would generally give two of those prebiotics. Partially hydrolyzed guaragum is somewhat unique that it feeds a range of a different group of bacteria than typical prebiotics do. Those that make a wonderful substance called butyrate, and I'm sure many of your listeners would be aware of, of obviously some aspects of B rate, but it's it's an amazing substance the more you look at it and the more research being done on it the more amazing we find it is so we want to encourage their regrowth in the ecosystem and then we give, give that alongside something like lactulose or inulin foss to to encourage the growth of bifidobacteria and acromantia which are and fecalibacterium three really keystone species that we associate with good health so we can by using and you do that for generally, i recommend three months after a course of antibiotics to to re to 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 re stimulate their growth and get them um, dominant again. And they and they do regrow relatively quickly. I think that's the the positive thing about bacteria is they grow quick. <laughs> so if we can give them the right food, create the right circumstances, they their populations as long as they survive the antibiotics, they come back. The, the challenge is, is when we get the extinction level events, um, which. Um,
0: that's tricky you can't
1: easily fix that bar yeah. bar fecal transplants and this is where i'm talking about you know fecal banking before We need that, a fecal bank <laughs> we do because that'll fix it immediately it's like oh yeah. you take your antibiotics boom you take this back you don't lose anything at that mm. point And you know, all your good bugs are back, back reset to the way it was before no losses of species diversity so that will happen it's just not
0: now how far away do you think fecal banks are like I'm picturing us being able to go to a little receptionist and (laughs) with our doctor's prescription and say, hi, I'm just here to pick up my, you know, like my, um, like, what do you, a syringe of uh, my poop sample uh, uh, with this particular thing. And um, they're like, okay, let me just, yes, I'll just go grab that. I'll be right back. Like how far away are we?
1: Oh, great question. I would like to think 10 years away i mean it might be sooner someone someone with with money has got to go hey this is really key let's still get the ball rolling i mean it, people freeze their eggs for d- different reasons but but for the pill okay i i, I might need these more in, in the future and it's the same with a uh, similar way that i think people are going to go okay, we can freeze it they'll probably work out ways of separating the poo bits from the microbes to make it a bit easier to deal with in terms of okay let's see if we can sit out the brown solids and just just leave <laughs> the bacterial bit yeah. so it's easier to take and i might make it um a capsule capsules versus directly. Mm. in fact i had a meeting with some a couple years back with some yeah sorry in i
0: went straight to the suppository vibe like yeah you know, probably... well
1: i think and, th- yeah. and that's where we're kind of at now but i think mm. long-term ease of uh, application will probably be you know doing what people call crapsules so you know yeah of poo um hence crapsules <laughs> but there was you
0: heard it here folks guys
1: <laughs> yeah and, and i had to meeting with some some, some um inventor uh, people in the u.s and they had developed a a machine that you that you kind of put on your toilet and then you would poo into it and they would collect it and then you just spin it and then all your poo would just go and fill out these capsules so you can actually make capsules at home without touching any poo and then you just put them in your freezer for later use you know so that was like a home home job way of, of doing it so i think that will become more commonplace too people will lose a bit of their and, th- and those are sort of this enteric coating on the capsule so they don't release in your stomach because that's the thing mm. that will will die if they yeah you don't stomach want your
0: stomach acid to just kill it like. No, no that's right so
1: they'll release into the small small bowel so like, again that's i keep waiting for their, their product to the market so it's been waiting a couple of years it's still not there but again that's not too far off um but i think there, there might be 500 bucks for that so it might be like you know a bit up much for some people to have, and then they have to have a special spot in their freezer for their, for their fecal <laughs> matter to, to be in. But the nice thing about you know, self FMT is you don't have to worry about passing on disease or, you know, um, health conditions because that's something that that I think the power of, of the microbiome is, has really come out in in recent studies looking at at how we can use poo to treat or give diseases. Yeah, we can, we can give Alzheimer's by taking poo from someone with Alzheimer's and give it to rats. And those rats will develop Alzheimer's disease. It's really amazing. And we can conversely take um, poo from young, healthy rats, give it to rats with Alzheimer's, and their Alzheimer's goes, you know, and their brain clears away the Alzheimer's, you know, the plaques and the the tangles go just from changing their their gut ecosystem. You know, so... Yeah. This area is immensely That's exciting. exciting and interesting. Yeah. And, mm. and, there, and there are case studies of people clear, getting rid of Alzheimer's from doing poo transplants and they weren't doing it for that purpose. They're doing it because they had a C diff infection and then the life threatening infection that wasn't responding to antibiotics. So like, okay, we'll get a poo transplant. And there are people where their Alzheimer's clears, like their cognitive scores go up after two months, four months, six months after FMT, they no longer have Alzheimer's their cognitive decline. They're cognitively normal. And to me, stories like that should be
0: front like page news Front page news,
1: and they should get people going what the hell? Like wh- how, how is this happening? And yeah, I know FMT is not going to be in that fashion is not going to be the most easy thing to, to get people to take, but it tells us how important the gut market body is and how vital it is and how we can change things. And, and again, in the same field, there's like the reversal of aging process too, where we can take poo from young, young animals and give it to, to old, old ones. And it reverses like the aging process, you know, um, and again, we get poo from old people, giving it to routes, and they've developed, they get old very quickly. It's, it's, it's really phenomenal. And I think sometimes the fountain of youth is actually going to be poo. Young, healthy people's poo is going to be our, our fountain of youth. I love that. To, the yeah. stuff
0: that our three-year-olds say funny jokes about and just laugh, and it's this kind of taboo thing. And even just asking about poo lately um, has finally become a little bit less taboo um we're checking in on health or not feeling too embarrassed to mention an aspect of your poop to your doctor like it's recent right that we yeah, actually yeah, even it, felt it comfortable bre- bro- broaching the subject so yeah and here
1: we are talking about on this like podcast <laughs> with thousands of people gonna be talking <laughs> about poo after the quote i just think the research is really is brilliant because as i said i've had that chance to, to um writing courses to update to teach health practitioners about these areas and it's just like oh even the last five years and stuff like high blood pressure. Would you have thought that you could pass on high blood pressure from a poo transplant or get rid of high blood pressure from a poo transplant? Yes. It turns out you can, you know, and just like stuff like that. you would never have made that connection that there was a gut link. And this is what's been shifted that last 20 years from, you know, gut bacteria not being important. Oh, gut bacteria important for some gut conditions to actually, (laughs) this is absolutely vital for your, your health, you know? Um, And there are even there's studies now using poo transplants for, Skin cancer treatment. People that are not responsive to immunotherapy for skin cancer, if they do a poo transplant from someone, another skin cancer patient who is responsive, they become responsive and they get benefits. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, it's an amazing area of, of just showing how important the microbiota is. Um, and now they're doing research, looking at, okay, if this person with this cancer type has this microbiota picture, they're going to not turn out well from an outcome perspective. If they have this type of um, ecosystem shape, they're going to actually respond really well to to treatments and have better long-term survival. There's research in that, there's areas too. So this is what I mean. It's really we're at this tipping point that it won't be long before we're doing fecal banking for ourselves, that there'll be, I would say a trade of poo for mm, people, rich people wanting to, to live forever. Like, oh, yeah, I, to I was going to say to, to keep myself young and healthy like that's going to evolve of this situation as well as using it for, for, you know, skin cancer treatment and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and multiple sclerosis, these areas that there's already some preliminary positive research in. Um, so watch this space, I would say.
0: Yeah, move over stem cells. There's a new poo on the block.
1: There is. And I always think there'll be like those people that have that unicorn poo. Like I remember having a a patient's partner who was in his he was in his forties. Um, he had with home home birth, home birth in, in 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 um the Netherlands, never antibiotics.
0: 40 wow. years old.
1: Not one course of antibiotics. He was breastfed for two years. If you could tick all the boxes for, for the ideal microbiome, and most of us do not, including myself, he did. It's like home birth. The best microbiome you can get is via home birth. So, you know, adequate breastfeeding, major tick there. Um, no antibiotics ever. Grew up in sort of a hippie household where they ate like whole food <laughs> diet without food chemicals, organic food. Um, and he was in his forties, metabolically super healthy, brain sharp as a tack, and and just really happy-go-lucky guy. And it's like, man, one day people will pay you thousands of dollars for your poo because you are like that sort of the unicorn of like. You know, one in a million or something like that that actually grew up in a Western culture, but managed to actually have a, a intact ecosystem intact in every other sort of way. Because it's really tricky, you know, for all of us between you know C sections, formula feeding, um, chemical exposure, antibiotic um, exposure being being rife in early childhood. All that stuff impacts the microbiome. So to find someone that that actually was not exposed to those damaging factors outside of the Amazonian rainforest, or you know. The highlands of Africa or something like that, or the Plains where, you know, the the had to live is, is pretty, pretty. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Wow. And so is there a black market for poo at this point in time? Do we know?
1: Oh, well, if so, I'm, I'm not aware of it, but I reckon it <laughs>
0: probably is. Um, I I'm wonder more, more whether a, there's some people white... who who know the potential and who are experimenting. I mean, that could, it, it would be better for a, a rich philanthropist to just step in here and and create more of a regulated um, business around it for the simple fact that we would then have better data research and more yeah. assuredness. Yeah, better matching we of
1: donor to, to yeah. recipients because I think that's the area where, we're not there yet in terms of the best outcomes. Yeah. The, with those, these, all these examples I, I shared, but uh, there's definitely improvements. Even, even the skin cancer one, I think it was only, you know, 40% of people that were non-responsive became responsive post-FMT. So, so 60% of people didn't. So we know that, okay, maybe if we were able to better do the research and match what traits we want, we can actually get people at up to 80% or 100% people responding to that that sort of immunotherapy treatment for their skin skin cancer. So yeah, we need more research still, but it is immensely exciting. And, and listen, there is, I mean, certainly people that are, you know, doing FMTs for things that um, are outside that sort of the C. diff box, because I think for for conventional medicine has just often been just C. diff, C. so that's all we use it for. Um, and then that stretched to inflammatory bowel disease, but there are you know, people who are doing, certainly researchers doing more cutting edge stuff of trying it for obesity and type two diabetes and all these other sort of conditions going, oh, wow, look, at, it helps not so much with obesity, sadly, to date, but certainly for with metabolic dysfunction, type two diabetes, hypertension, those things have improved post post FMT. Um, but we're still early days in terms of finding the, the best um, ways of matching, you know, donors and, and recipients
0: yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a wild tangent.
1: It was, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, I love that. Uh, so good. Uh, so, my my fifth point that I want to ask you about is around gluten. Just mentioned it very briefly earlier that it was life changing for me, uh, especially Australian and American gluten. In France, I seem to be just fine and in the country. It. Yeah, in the countryside. Eating beautiful local-made uh, things that have flour in them, no problems. It's it's awesome uh, as a half Frenchie, But one of the doctors that was at the conference that you were recently at, Doctor Fasano, he—you asked him given the results of his two ex vivo studies—and I will get you to explain that for the one hundred and one people. Um, where you found gluten, gliadin, could cause temporary changes in intestinal perme- permeability, even in healthy intestinal cells. Do you agree with the recommendation then that some people have based on your research that humans should avoid eating gluten? What did he say? No, no okay so, so, right, right, right. he's like
1: no 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 That's let's not break what it down doing yeah yeah so, so what e- is ex vivo ex vivo means we're, we're taking cells out of human bodies and then growing them in, in test tubes and then essentially they did that with cvac cells gut cells from cvac patients gut cells from healthy controls and they kind of almost like rubbed some gluten on them and it turns out the cvac ones had a huge reactivity and the normal ones had a bit of reactivity but still became like kind of leaky afterwards so you know, you go online in some bloggers circles and be like, everyone on earth has to stop eating gluten. Like no one on earth, no humans should consume this stuff because of his studies. So I'm like, it's not what he said in his study, but it's what people have interpreted. And I was like, I'm going to ask, here's my chance of meeting the great Dr. Prasada. I'm going to ask him directly, is that what you think should be the case? Do you really think that everyone on earth should be doing? Because normally we would never make recommendations like that based on two in vitro studies. You know um, that that's such what we call low quality data. You know, it's like, and there's you know other in vitro studies not show, that, that did not find that same thing too. I should point out to at least at least one finding that it didn't increase permeability in healthy controls. So you know, it's a bit of a lack of clarity there for the for one part anyway. But he was like no, because because essentially what f- from his perspective, people who are celiac, obviously people that are gluten sensitive, yes, and probably people with autoimmune disease. Is the categories that he put in. Those are the ones that should be avoiding gluten, but not everybody else. He eats gluten and he's fine. He said, most of us are totally fine with it. It's just, if you have those things going on, then it's definitely celiac, definitely, you know, gluten sensitivity, which we're still defining what that means. You know, there's still great single test for it. Um, it just means that you're, you know, reactive to, to gluten essentially, but don't have celiac is kind of our current way of, of defining it. Um, and then autoimmune disease where, it's there's certainly an overlap between celiac and autoimmune disease as part of the picture and on and also that we know that you know the leaky gut is is one of the things that seems to precede um autoimmune disease. And it even precedes celiac development too, interestingly enough, is that having leaky gut first has got to be some sort of you know trigger that causes gut damage for celiac to eventually kind of evolve onwards, interestingly enough.
0: Yeah. Mm. Wow. Okay. And so um the the next point that I, I want to ask you about is SIBO. And a lot of SIBO patients obviously get taken off all the inflammatory foods. And then they also get taken off anything that might be probiotic because it might upset SIBO. Um, but at the conference, this seemed in terms of what the conversation is currently quite debunkable that you would um that you would just blanket decide that probiotics were bad for SIBO patients.
1: Yeah. And this has always been an interesting for me, an interesting area. And, and partly because my my PhD and my honors degree, which I started back in 99, was in the gut microbiota in IBS patients and, and dysbiosis and IBS patients. And so I was like all over the research with prebiotics, probiotics, the microbiota in IBS at the time when someone came up and said, hey, you know, um, SIBO is a driver of IBS and therefore, you know, probiotics are bad. But I'm like, hold on, we've got studies in the 1950s showing that probiotics are helpful in IBS. And you've just said that IBS is essentially eighty four people, eighty four percent of people is what they said at that time. Uh, patients with um, IBS have SIBO, and it's like this is not not fit. Um, and they also said stuff like the small intestine supposed to be sterile, and it's like no. It's not, never was, never, not, not meant to be. It's just the, the um, eventually, eventually that moves to, okay, no, it's not sterile. It's the amount of bacteria that matters. And, you know, and now that's kind of shifted over the years to, it's not even just the amount of bacteria, it's whether you've got pathogenic bacteria there that actually seems to matter. Like the people that have symptoms that we call SIBO tend to have lower diversity of the ecosystem um, and higher levels of, of more pathogenic Bad bacteria like Klebsiella or E. coli or growing in their in their small bowel, or, and that seems to be causing the harm. Versus them, and sometimes trypic to too, for that matter. But it's now being seen, I think, from the the more recent research, the last five years, as a, a disease of dysbiosis rather than just any bacteria in there is problematic. And that when you embrace that, it changes your thinking because what what can probiotics do? They can change dysbiosis. You can give a probiotic to alter the ecosystem to one that's actually healthy. And that's what this study that was presented at this conference was doing. They essentially um, utilized a probiotic to change the composition of the small bowel ecosystem and it reduced levels of pathogenic bacteria like uh, Klebsiella and E. coli all went down. The ones that we see is problematic diversity improved uh, the ecosystem and the stability and strength of that ecosystem improved after the after the probiotic administration. Meaning it was more robust to external challenges um, and more stable, and that was key. So you actually get this benefit. Um, yes, yeah, so that was that was interesting to see clearly because that was one of the few studies that was able to like just show the actual impact on the on the gut ecosystem, the small bowel ecosystem specifically. Because most research we do it looks at colonic. Because we get poo, so we can look at the colonic ecosystem, not the small bowel stuff. But this was research done on people that had had ileostomies, where they had their colon removed. They had, like, essentially a hole in their gut where their stuff came out at the end of the small intestine. So we can actually look at the the ecosystem there in the small intestine very easily and see how it is changed by interventions. Yes, it was a pretty novel approach in that way. Um, now you add that on top of all the, stu- all the studies that have been done utilizing probiotics to treat SIBO, and this very consistent positive results that we see um, in studies. And again, that stuff was around from the nineteen nineties early two thousands. But in two thousand seventeen, researchers did what they call meta analysis, where they grab every single study. To see what is there consensus agreement about what what results we get when we give probiotics and sibo, and yes, you get improved outcomes. You know, decreased Mm. gas production, uh, clearance rates of around like fifty some percent just for giving giving probiotics, and that's not too dissimilar to what you actually achieve with with antibiotic treatment either these days. So,
0: and would it? Are we talking about those same stars that we talked about with the antibiotic treatment scaffolding? Ah, well.
1: Like, interesting i mean the saccharomyces yeah you know, there's yes.
0: lots of probiotics there so. is that yeah mm. so
1: saccharomyces yes there's certainly some research on, on saccharomyces for decreasing um SIBO and in one study they're comparing it to antibiotics and it had better outcomes than than the antibiotics did um then there is the in terms of what's commercially available there's another bug called uh from bio BioGaia, which is lactobacillus lateride dsm one seven nine three eight catchy name I know, but just think it's BioGaia. <laughs> he
0: um, needs a new marketing campaign. That, well, I that's... think they just call
1: BioGaia. That's probably yeah, the yeah. marketing now. But mm. yeah, that one has been shown to reduce uh methane levels. Like some people that like this are arguably three different types of SIBO, but most people have hydrogen or methane, and um this reduces methane this bug and there's even studies using that particular bio guy preparation to prevent SIBO from developing in people who took proton pump inhibitors so proton pump inhibitors PPIs, are a classic drug that is so widely used in australia and america and canada in the western world it's massive because it, they use it to treat heartburn so when people get heartburn reflux they give ppis and they give them for not just weeks but for months to years or forever you know like you're 40 you get you get a of reflux. Oh, take this for the rest of your life is kind of how it's often done. Um, but one of the things that, that one of the many negative outcomes from, from PPI use is it actually causes SIBO. Yeah. And and, and oh, there's a study published just a few weeks back that one week, seven days of PPI use caused SIBO in 7.8% of people who took it. And the authors were like, ah, oh, it's only 7.8% of people. That's not bad. Uh, I was like, that's a week.
0: It's an over-the-counter drug often in the pharmacy. Like if you yeah. think of your Gaviscon's and all those sorts of brands, this is there's, yeah, a, the, yeah, there's it, millions and millions and millions of that's people right. taking these things. And that's that's after one week.
1: And there's yeah. a, a study that in kids, it was 56% of them developed SIBO after six week, or 12 weeks of PPIE. So there's a spectrum, you know, 8% after a week to 56% after 12 weeks. But in that study of the 12-week one, they gave the BioGaia prep- probiotic preparation and only 6% developed SIBO. After 12 weeks versus 56% in the placebo group. So it actually prevented SIBO from from developing very markedly. Um, and this is where the, st- the strain matters because the, the re- reuterized strain in the Biogaia produces a substance called reuterin. Not, you know, that's where it's named, reuterin. Reuterin is a selectively acting antibacterial product and that kills off add bacteria. So when it's traversing its way through the small bowel, it's just releasing some reuterine as it goes, which kills off competing bugs and hence you stop getting SIBO from developing. But not all strains of lactose reuteri produce reuterine, only some do. So if you just go, I'll just take a random retry, you can't guarantee getting that result. Because if it doesn't produce uterine, you're not going to get that same sort of result. And this is where the strains really, really matter. And this is one of those clear case in points. Yeah. But yeah, PPIs are another class of medications that, you know, essentially when they were first developed, they, they were clearly shown to have antibiotic effects. So they, they kill um, bacteria. And, and some research showed that they, they can kill up to about 20% of your ecosystem is susceptible to damage from PPIs. And people are long-term PPIs, their ecosystem richness gets worse and worse. And after a few years on it, it's no different than taking antibiotic courses for years in terms of the microbiome composition, increased risk of, of osteoporosis, increased risk of Alzheimer's too. And that's just because of the the change in the microbiome. Both, we now know that osteoporosis and Alzheimer's are microbiome-linked conditions. Yeah, we can change bone, how much bone breakdown creation there is by changing the microbiome. We can sort of alter the the Prognosis or path of, of Alzheimer's, you know, tr- you know, moving forward or going back by changing the microbiome. So uh, and PPIs are just really problematic. I- again, there's a time and place, but they w- research also shows that I think some uh, 50 to 70 percent of people taking PPIs are doing so inappropriately, not based on the evidence. So it's another class of medications that you really want to be on for the minimal time possible, and limit your exposure if you can do anything else to protect yourself.
0: And you yeah. you want to work with that. practitioners who understand and have compassion for SOS picture, however, are also working on the day to day picture of what needs to change for you to not need that thing anymore. Yeah,
1: that's right. Because I, mean, I work with I've worked with reflux patients for twenty years in my practice, and often it's diet. We can change diet, and we can stop reflux. We can change eating patterns what they're eating Um, sometimes there'll be underlying SIBO we treat that The reflux goes sometimes underlying constipation and high methane you treat that the the reflux goes Other times it's just they're eating too big and large meals and and having too much alcohol again you can you can intervene in those areas and and never mind the fact there are some natural agents that can can effectively treat the reflux symptoms in that moderate medium term while you're trying to treat the underlying cause um, that don't have the same effects of, of PPIs you know, I think that, and yeah, working with clinicians who are aware of those bits and and aware of the fact that PPIs cause harm, be, besides just, uh, I don't know. I think they're often seen as a pretty benign agent. I think that's, that's part of the, tr- the trick with why they're so widely prescribed is because people go, oh, they're, they're well tolerated in the short term. Yeah, they probably are. But <laughs> you know, if you understand that they actually are antibacterials, you're giving someone an antibiotic intake take for life, essentially, and that. It does have long-term harm. It changes when you prescribe this agent, it changes how long you prescribe it for. Never mind the stuff that, that you know 7.8% of people are developing SIBO after a week it might mean that you're less inclined to just like, let's give it a try. I don't know what's wrong with you. I'm going to give you a PPI and see what the impact is, which occurs. Like I, I see by patients not infrequently this prescribed a PPI because the doctors aren't sure what's going on. They're like, let's try it, see if it makes a difference. And that's okay if that medication is harmless or essentially harmless for short-term bursts, but with this research going, okay, well, 7.8% of people developed after just one week, that's like a trial period, developed a chronic condition that can be really hard to treat in some people, you know, um, and take months to years of treatment in some people, depending on how they responsive they are, SIBO can be very quite variable in terms of um, response. It's like you might be causing a chronic disease to, to you know, as, as a trial, when you're trialing something to see if it actually helps or treat a different condition.
0: Yeah, I always say maybe try like ditching the burger buns, rice and pasta for a week and see if you feel different, you know, and I'm not anti any of those things. We often have an Asian meal in the mix over the month or two and there's rice in that meal and my family adores spaghetti bolognese. So we have that once or twice a month, but the rest of the time... I I often find, I don't know if you found this, um, but this is just my life. I find if I mix a a high carb and a high protein meal together, so high carb, high animal protein, that would be the heartburn meal. I can do carbs and veggies. Yeah, I can do protein and veggies. But there's something about mixing the high carb, high protein together that for me is a, a no. And my husband's found the same.
1: Interesting. I, I, to be honest, I, I felt that I had, when, I haven't had reflux since I was a teen, but mm. when, I, when I did have reflux then, it was when I had meals like that, that mm. exactly like yeah. that, but I don't necessarily see that super common as, as in my patient population. Oh, wow. Yes, in okay. some, but, but others, it is, um, alcohol or the certain th- things that make the sphincter lose its, its strength and tone. Yeah. yeah uh, alcohol is one of those things that's, it's a common driver, um, just eating larger meals, like and drinking fluid with meals. Sometimes there's just very simple things that you know. You eat to your full, and then you drink a couple glasses of water on top of that. Your stomach only really expands out, and then it, the pressure is, is is goes up, and you get you get it coming up so sort of that way too. So sometimes it's not even what they're eating so much as the quantity of food they're consuming, and, and reducing fluid intake with their meals that makes a world of difference. Other times it's more complex than that, but um, it, but it's interesting that observation because I could I could think back when I was a kid when I had reflux. It was always after Actually, spaghetti bolognese was probably a little better than it it, it was actually. When I think about it, yeah,
0: hundred percent. And my husband was traveling to New Orleans for uh, work last year, and so it was a week of like there was chips and burgers, or there was like a slider, or like very sandwichy kind of situations um, you know, hospitality conferences. It's not known for like leading with really healthful foods at the breaks. Um, but he was like, Oh my gosh, I just can I just have a, a steak and salad? <laughs> can I just like really simplify? Just have because he knows now. And then it's just it's sorted in two days. He just doesn't have those problems anymore. Uh, So I think it's also about just tuning in, right? We're so disconnected. We externalize health so much that we hardly have the conversation with ourselves about what's working.
1: Yeah. And I think the conventional medical model that we have gives clinicians so little time with their patients. And it means that do they discuss diet much or lifestyle? No. And the end result of that is often, okay, I've got seven minutes with you. You okay? You got reflux. Okay, here, take this medication. And will that help in the short term? Yeah. And that's sometimes we're off to these like short term fixes, and um, and people, patients aren't even necessarily told that there's a dietary connection. And some, I think, are should be aware of it if they're paying any attention at all, and some, I think, do pay attention, they can't see pattern that occurs too. Don't get me wrong, but I think for many, there's, there's a clear pattern there from if they were paying attention to, to how the body was responding to what they're putting in, they would they could work out what's what's healthful and healthy reaching for them and which ones are actually causing them arm and symptoms.
0: 100%. Uh, now I have two more things to ask you about. One is uh, blasto. So blasto,
1: blasto, sister, sister,
0: Yes. I didn't want to get it wrong. Um, do we have to go all out at, to war on this microbe? Uh, it sounds like not so much.
1: No, I think I think the research has shifted here, and I can say as a clinician, I'll put my hand up here. Twenty years ago, if someone presented with symptoms and blasto on a stool test, I would target that. That must be the cause. Let me try to kill it <laughs> for you. I was there myself, like you know, in the early two thousands when I first graduated as a, as a naturopathic clinician. I wasn't using antibiotics to target it, but I was still using you know I would say pretty strong herbs that can cause you know broader microbiome damage, trying to kill this thing. Um, because the research at that point was strongly suggested that it was problematic okay and all and all clarity that's where the research was in the 90s and was was really around that everyone
0: was just doing the best with what they knew
1: exactly yeah Yeah. it's just that knowledge has evolved since then and and i think it's important that we evolve with that change of knowledge because now because i think part of the studies initially were like okay this person has symptoms we check if they have blastocystis. Oh, look, they do. Therefore, that must be the cause. Yeah. They didn't bother checking if healthy people had blastocystis either. And whether there's greater proportion of blastocystis in people that had symptoms versus not. And when they started doing studies like that, of what's the prevalence in healthy populations? They're like, oh, my God, it's actually immensely prevalent. And and they, I think there's some studies showing that 55% of Australians have got blastocystis in their guts. you know. And there'll be some people out there, and, and I would say in the old paradigm, be like they're be willing to give them like three different antibiotics orally and three antibiotics intraclonically to try to kill it, even if they're probably asymptomatic because Blasto showed up on a stool test, you know, on the extreme end of things, uh, and I've seen those <laughs> patients afterwards when they're far worse off after the antibiotic decimation of their microbiome, um, and yeah, the Blasto is gone, but geez, they're they're far worse off than they were before. Um, yeah, and there's just been that that shifting of actually, it's really it's actually associated with people who eat the healthiest diets and those that have the most diverse and healthy ecosystems have got blastocystis there. Um, and those that have the most sort of decimated, you know, harm, um, impacted less diverse ecosystems have lower risk lower rates of, of blastocystis. So we're seeing patterns like that. We're seeing, okay, like, and one of the studies public, um, presented, the data presented at the conference was, they're linking, okay, the people that had blastocystis had lower weight better blood sugar control better blood lipids you know they're generally metabolically much healthier than people that actually didn't have blastocystis yeah um and 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 even its role in the gut has changed because it it eats bacteria that's what it eats you know and it turns out that people are possibly now it it, it performs the apex predator role in the gut so like the great white shark or the the wolf in yellowstone that, that keeps deer populations in check that if you take away the apex predator there are consequences to that in terms of some bacterial populations that were kept in check that were harmful go out of out of, out of balance because it's nothing we keeping re- that in check anymore
0: yeah wow we yeah. removed the wolf yes that's mm. right
1: yeah and that's where the current thinking is is, is going with, with that and i think in the vast vast majority of people with blastocystis present on a stool test it's harmless all right i'm in that category i've got blastocystis in my stool my my gut health is Touch wood, been exemplary. I've got other health <laughs> issues, but my, not my gut's not one of them. It whatever. better
0: be, doc. Um, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I've got blastocystis there. I showed up on a sample and I was just doing a bunch of stool tests to compare what the different studies, the different labs found. And I'm like, oh, look at that. I've got it. My family have got it. All are asymptomatic and going great. And you, the more you delve into the research, the more you go, oh, no, it's not a problem. And I think also when you start doing a more thorough workup of patients, like the patients that I saw 20 years ago that said, I've got symptoms and blasto, I wouldn't do more testing i would just treat at that point now it's like i have patients who come to me i've got blasto i've got symptoms i'm like okay let's test to see what else is going on and it works like oh well you've actually got SIBO or you're chronically constipated and it's got nothing to do with blasto and we can and you fix the other things and blasto is still there and their life is going great. You know, I think it's only a very, very minority of, of patients um, that were blasto as actually a cause of their problems. I wouldn't say nobody, but I would say I have not treated someone in my clinical practice to, to target the blasto in the last eight years for somebody to give you an idea, yet it shows up on stool tests frequently and we get good results because we're treating the actual cause, which is not not the blasto, you know. And there, uh, I mean, I think there are some arguments that maybe... The wrong diet. If you're eating a typical Western diet, um a crappy diet, and lots of emulsifiers, and and you know, and you've got plastic, maybe there's a greater chance of harm being caused from that interaction. Yes, but that also means that you can change the diet and improve the healthy ecosystem, and then turn that that maybe pathogenic blasto into actually a, a healthful variant, um just by changing the environment around it. Yeah, which to me seems like a much better approach than let's see if we can. You know, give you six different antibiotics at once and, and try to kill the thing, um, as, as well as decimate your entire ecosystem as part of that process,
0: too. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So many parallels. I'm sort of thinking almost about like, mental health or like the bad boy who's misunderstood and actually just <laughs> needed to be loved as a child. And like, that's, I that's just, interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way, but yes. I yeah. always, uh, you know, cause I always, I, I did a lot of um, uh, kid education on gut health, like many years ago when we ran our thrive course and uh, as a live course, and it was about helping parents like Describe, so I often use Star Wars and the lightsabers and all the things to just, you know, good guys, bad guys, little kids understand that. Um, but it, it's almost like we also have to recognize that in. The wrong context, a good guy can become a bad guy, and we want to help it become a good guy again.
1: Yeah, and and that's very much the case with certain microbes in our gut. We 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 call them pathobionts is our technical term. But bugs that are in the right amount do lots of healthful great things for us. But when there's too much, they can cause harm. Yeah, or too little. I uh, think <laughs> this harm comes from that too. And and sometimes it's a matter of changing the environment. Like like bacteroides is a good case point. It's it's a common genera and um genus in the guts of humans and it's really common in westerners okay people that eat live in canada australia america uk tend to be dominated by bacteriores because it it likes living on a typical western diet and it's and it generally tolerates antibiotics well so we're kind of giving it killing off its competition it survives and we're giving it the dietary protocol that it likes Um, and in that context it produces harmful metabolites okay and it produces you know and, and it's not when the pH in the in the environment of the colon is more towards neutral, it we're kind of getting the bad traits of the bacteroides, bad metabolic byproducts, it you know re-releases toxins we're trying to get rid of, or drugs we're trying to get rid of, it re-releases it so you get a second go at by a path like a beta glucuronidase. But if we change the pH, i.e. we eat more fiber, we eat more polyphenols, we, we end up um changing the pH in the environment and then Bacteroides is still there but it isn't able to actually produce the same harmful metabolites anymore. And it produces healthful metabolites for us. So it it is, sometimes it is a matter of just shifting proportion or shifting that what's around it by our diet, we actually can bring out the positive traits versus the negative traits
0: as well. Very, very good clarifications there. I really, I really like that. And I like where it's heading in terms of I feel like we're in 2.0 with gut health, right, and the understanding um, we're a lot more flexible in our thinking and understanding of science and recognising grey area and, um, and that environment is king and what we feed that environment is king. So the final question I have is very much speaking to that, uh, which is on glyphosate glyphosate and its effect on the microbiome there have been a few nascent studies over the last sort of couple of decades where alarms have been sounded Um, i had a wonderful professor michael antonio on the show a few years ago to talk about the effect of glyphosate on proteins in the gut and the genetic expression which was kind of cool but this new study in november has revealed uh, something clearer for us about how we really should pay attention to where we're getting our food from, and if it's if glyphosate, so a roundup, um, is being used uh, in our in our food chain.
1: Yeah, and, and I think this is where we've had that shift in technology. From because I agree, there's been stuff around maybe glyphosate causes harm, microbiota harm, studies published years ago, but we were using old. Microbiology techniques, we couldn't necessarily see the degree of perhaps harm that was was done because not because it turns out that the whole reason like that glyphosate stress was used is because it actually blocks a particular pathway, yeah, and that that plants have that human cells don't have. So they're like, oh, here we go. Great, something that will not harm humans, and quotation mark you know, um that that will harm harm plants, therefore it'll be fine for us to ingest. But it just turns out that. Our bacteria, many of them share actually have that same pathway that the plants have, Um, the chemic pathway. So if we inhibit that, we're inhibiting their their growth and we can actually work out to, to kill them. And it turns out that actually a lot of our good bacteria utilize that pathway. So when we ingest glyphosate, it actually inhibits the growth of our good bacteria, whereas some of the bad guys actually can tolerate higher amounts of glyphosate. So glyphosate might actually have a selective antibacterial effect in a bad way that we're actually... And we ingest more of it, we're actually selecting for more harmful species are going up. And the healthful species like Fecalibacterium, which is really a keystone health species for, for humans, and which we've talked a bit about already, their populations go down because they're sensitive to that, that agent, whereas things like Pseudomonas or um, S- Salmonella, they're, they're like, oh, we're, we tolerate this thing quite fine, so they'll, they'll keep going. Yeah, that's right. So it's, it's kind of selectively having negative impacts. And, and then some people were estimating that maybe 50% of the bacteria in your gut m- might actually have that pathway that we might be impacted negatively by glyphosate. And when you start taking on one at the very least the importance of the, of the gut microbiome to human health, or two, that big, bigger leap is that we actually are beings composed of human cells and, and microbe cells that make us, us, we should not be ingesting something that poisons the microbes component of us. And, and that we can't imagine there's not going to be consequences to that. I think that's because of that broader shift in consciousness of bacteria don't matter, therefore we kill them at the who cares to actually know bacteria. But actually, no, we are. We are beings that are like maybe equal parts, you know, maybe 90% microbes. There's some discussion about that, but we are mostly microbes, arguably. And if we're doing something that kills the microbial components of ourselves, how could there not be a consequence to that? Yeah. Um, how could yeah, not so we, yeah. So when you start reading that and, you know, again, and this is not something like antibiotics that are life saving. Mm, you know, it's no. like, we do not need to be ingesting this substance. There's many people in the world who don't farm with glyphosate, <laughs> we've grown food for millennia without this substance. We do not need to be exposed to it, let alone like spraying it all over our bloody driveways and stuff. Cause we've been told it's, it's, it's safe.
0: Yeah, mm. it's, and would the respiratory impact of using glyphosate in a home setting, um, can can that You would still get
1: in that fear system that way for sure yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. you wouldn't be negated just by because you're not actually ingesting in your food you'd still come into your your get into your gut from from Mm. that that pathway for sure it's it's interesting Mm. substance because even the impact it has on plants like it actually stops i was reading that it actually limits the production of of certain amino acids like tryptophan because wow. that, that pathway is important for the plants to make amino acids. So it actually, when you, you spray that on the plant, as the plant survives, it actually produces a lot less of those essential amino acids that we've relied on before and other plant metabolites that, that are based on that. So there's certain plant compounds that we'd see as medicinally active from a herbal medicine perspective, you know, that aren't produced if that plant is exposed to glyphosate. And it's just like, Oh my God, like what are the consequences of that? When it's like, bloody ubiquitous in our rain in our rainfall and our water supply it's like everywhere and it's actually maybe impacting um you know the protein content and, and the amino acid profile of the foods that we're consuming but also the medicinal constituents that are that are, we've relied on plants producing for us including things in like polyphenols and other compounds that might be impacted because we're disturbing that particular pathway it's scary when you delve into it in, in greater detail mm-hmm. and again you just question why we allow this substance to be in our food supply and in our environment, you know, when we don't need it. I think that's yeah. the thing. I mean, antibiotics, p- proton pump sugars, they've got to use, they've got a time the This thing is not needed.
0: Mm. And and it makes me think, like, if we're not then, could this be one of the reasons that plants aren't as satisfying from a protein perspective as they perhaps once were?
1: Interesting thought. Yeah. Right? Because yeah, yeah, right. it, it does seem to impact the tryptophan, I think, phenylalanine and another amino acid that, This is not there and and nearly as much in in plants exposed to glyphosate and the challenge is now it's not just the the plants sprayed by the farmers. It's like it's become ubiquitous in our in our water water supply chain. It's like they're finding in rain rainfall like everywhere. It's just like.
0: Yeah. Gosh, that just opens up a whole can of worms right at it the does. end of our, yeah, yeah, our it time. But uh, suffice it to say that if you can do anything to change just a few items a week to just make a start on uh, organic or straight from a farmer where you can have that conversation and ask if they're spraying because sometimes really small farms can't afford the organic certification. So knowing your farmer is actually a really important piece of being able to afford spray-free Glyphosate-free produce. Yeah, And yeah, no, um, I'm a
1: huge supporter of of farmers markets and 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 obviously organic produce too. But you know, I, every week I go down to my farmers market and come back with baskets full of amazingly good, yummy, fresh, spray-free. Sometimes sort of organic, sometimes just spray-free, but but produce that just feels so nurturing, you know. Um, and I think it's just and it's just such a good way of actually giving money directly to people who make the food for us to grow the food and and showing that how important that is. It's such a, it's a vital thing that we
0: just don't give the, they don't get the respect that they
1: need given that they're the ones who are keeping us all alive, essentially. You know, it's it's
0: 100%. And what a lovely place to end support your farmer. I mean, at the end of the day, we can have these extremely technical conversations about groundbreaking science, studying little microbes in guts and poop Uh, But at the end of the day, what it actually all comes back to and what makes it a heck ton easier to thrive is support your farmer and go buy produce or or start growing if you have the capacity um, so you know where a lot of your food is coming from.
1: Yeah. And even from a microbiome perspective, one of the best ways we can diversify or add richness to our ecosystem is grow your own food. Uh, and being in nature and, and even just diversifying your garden. Like there's research showing that people that have a wider variety diversity of, of plants growing in their garden have a wider variety of microbes in their gut. Yeah. So it's like diversify your garden. Don't you have a green lawn. Like my front yard is full of hundreds of different plants. It's like not just green grass. It's like, you know, and, and it, it, even if it's growing one thing. You know, that itself, that exposure to soil makes a difference. Even going out and the weeding their garden makes a difference from your microbiome perspective. So so get out into nature, grow your own food and support your farmers. Those are simple, relatively simple things you can do that you've got control over that, that will um, make the, the world a better place, but make your gut a better place too.
0: It absolutely will, and I'm going to add worm farm because for the city people who maybe you've just got a balcony and you can grow a few pots of herbs, but a worm farm is such a brilliant way to tap into nature's cycle and be exposed to rich soil. Uh, yeah, I, and growing
1: I, growing plants in the veranda, even if they're not edible plants, but just having mm-hmm. that exposure to plants because they've got their microbes and if we're interacting with those plants, we get exposed and inhale and ingest those microbes too, which interact with us. And humans have always been you know, exposed to microbes up until relatively recently in our, you know, city lifestyle where we might be no longer getting that exposure. And I think we miss, there'll be, again, negative consequences when we kind of change what we've always been exposed to.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it kind of, kind of, we're ending with let's all strive for unicorn poo. That's where we're ending. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> we can, and we can do our best with where we're at you know i, yeah. I, I, I have someone that i was i was no breastfed just this formula because that's what they did in the 70s we're like, yeah me
0: don't too. even bother
1: breastfeeding just give formula that's, that's mm. better that's what the doctors told my parents they did mm. you know, they're trying to do their best and that's just what they were told grew up eating a to- horrible american i grew up in canada but you know we had american food same same so, yeah you know really crap kind of yeah. diet yeah yeah at 18, I was like, I discovered health. It's like, i you can do a lot. You, whatever you change, you change, you can actually change a lot from that point. Whether that be 18, whether that's 20, whether that's 60, but that's 70, you can actually make a huge difference by changing at that point, you know, no matter what went on beforehand. Because all these things happened to us before we had any say in the matter you know, and or knew better, a combination of those sort of things. But we just work from where we're at now. And and the gut does have a great degree of resiliency there. And I think if we can do some of those things of of being out in nature, wilder spots, you know, exposure to nature like that, as well as guarding those simple things will actually start feeding new species into your gut. Maybe not in any permanent way, but if you're constantly exposed, it's no different. I guess they're constantly there because you're constantly exposed to those microbes.
0: Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much for all your amazing work and for sharing what is happening at the forefront today. I really, really appreciate it.
1: Ah, you're welcome. It's been a great conversation. I enjoyed it too.
0: I hope you loved today's show as much as I loved bringing it to you. I want to remind you that if you are someone who craves a low tox community that is judgment free, full of empowerment, has health professionals and building health professionals that can support you as well as me in their answering questions multiple times a week, I want to invite you to join the low tox club for the price of less than a cup of coffee, A month, you have an annual membership for forty nine dollars Australian, so it's about thirty dollars US or Euro that allows you to have a member masterclass every single month with a health professional or global expert from the podcast, where we have them to ourselves for an hour to ask questions and deep dive further. You have the beautiful supportive chat group. You have Q and A's with me, me answering questions. We read books and talk about them, and a whole bunch more. You can head to lotoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and join the club is the very first option on that list. Of course, we have over 10 evergreen courses that you can jump into anytime, whether it's navigating everyday Lotox swaps with our Go Lotox signature course, whether you have kids and you're wanting to know how to best support them with our Lotox kids course, whether you're planning a family and looking at a healthy Lotox preconception journey, reducing in inflammation, especially the chronic kind, with our Inflammation Ninja course, many, many other courses. You can again head to lowtoxlife.com, hit the courses tab, and you'll see all of the options, which includes a business course, my Low Tox Method program. Uh, A lot of people don't know, but uh, I was doing a lot before starting Low Tox Life in 2009, and I was a business consultant across hospitality, health, retail, and cosmetics, I have been in business consulting for a very long time. So I absolutely adore helping people move into the low-tox space or develop their low-tox businesses. So that's a way I can support you. And then, of course, there's our wonderful social media communities at low-tox life on Instagram and, of course, the website with over 250 gluten-free recipes, blogs, downloadable pdfs to help you navigate wanting to get rid of synthetic fragrances in your school or office I could go on. So head to lotoxlife.com, see what takes your interest or fancy and thank you so much for being a part of our podcast community. I love, love, love reading your reviews. I appreciate every follow and subscribe and I want to just remind you to finish off that if there's anything you heard that you found interesting from a medical or scientific perspective it is intended as education only. Please always chat to a health professional who knows you and your situation best.